and welcome back to The Beacon, a podcast produced by the Oxford International Relations Society. I am your host, Haley Lemieux, and this week we will explore the recent shift in Latin American politics away from leftist political parties. At the beginning of the year, many commentators reported on a recession of the pink tide, which is a term used to describe the predominance of leftist ideology and political parties across most of Latin America that emerged since the late 1990s. The BBC reported that in 2005, two-thirds of South Americans were governed by left-leaning presidents. However, after elections in Venezuela and Argentina in 2015, some have been wondering if we're now going to see right-leaning candidates and parties gaining power across the region. To hear more about this issue, I talked to Andrea Newell, a freelance journalist based in Mexico City, Dr. David Doyle, a professor of comparative politics at the University of Oxford, and Robbie Mitchell, a former research associate at the Council of Hemispheric Affairs. First, I spoke to Andrea Noel, who is a freelance journalist based in Mexico City and the former Latin America editorial coordinator for Vice News. So, many commentators have described what they see as a recession of the pink tide in Latin America. Can you tell us a bit about some of the events that have led to this conclusion? Yeah, yes, well, I'm not sure if conclusion is the right word. Um, people have been floating similar speculations since about 2013. As of late, the election of Mauricio Macri in Argentina this past December sort of marked an end of, of Peronism in Argentina and was a remarkable shift to the right for Argentinian politics. Also in Venezuela, there was a, a parliamentary supermajority reached really since the first time since the rise of Chavez. And that's been a very significant uh, marker, I think, that's causing the speculation. Whether or not it's actually occurring is premature. Uh, when I spoke to Santiago Baruch at the Council on Hemispheric Affairs, he mentioned two factors in his opinion that would allow us to sort of reach this conclusion, and that would be the continued success of right-wing parties throughout South America, as well as a, a real shift in the entire political ideology of the region, which, which we are beginning to see throughout Latin America. A, a prominent example would be what's happening in Cuba. Uh, you know, for the first time, we're sort of reaching a point where there won't be a Castro in power, which is, is very significant. So you're seeing sort of an end of these sort of prominent figureheads like the Kirchners and Chavez and Castros of the past uh, years and decades. So, I mean, th there's definitely changes are occurring and they are noticeable, but it's been described as a, as a, a pendulum that swings right and then swings back to the left. And what we're seeing is, for the, f for the first time, it is starting to trend toward the right and the left parties in power are also starting to trend towards political moderation and, you, you know, towing the line of centrism instead of loud socialism or oppressive right-wing policies. It's, it's becoming a, a much more balanced middle spectrum in, in the region. Can you talk about some of the countries where leftist parties are still in power and what kind of policies those leaders are enacting? The, the, very, the very farthest on the spectrum, I, I, I would say, towards socialism, where we're still seeing success of left-wing uh, leaders, I think would be Bolivia. Evo Morales is definitely an exception 
to the shift that we're seeing. And my understanding of why, it's, it's a very complicated situation there, but um, he sort of garnishes a lot of power from the fact that the demographics of the country are so unique and it, it, indigenous rights um, is definitely a, a factor. So he has huge populist support from the more ethnic demographic and you know he's managed to maintain a, a lot of success I think in part because of that. On the other side of the spectrum you have Uruguay which is you know center-left. They've broken from historically right-wing politics They've sort of managed to, to do so by maintaining very market-friendly, open, you know, Western-friendly policies, while at the same time being very progressive on their social policies. Uh, you know, Jose Mujica, during his term, you know, they legalized on-demand on abortion, which is very progressive, fully legalized marijuana, the first country, I believe, in the world to do so. So I think those are, are definitely marked exceptions of people who are managing to maintain success uh, on, on the left side of the spectrum. And so why do you think that they're managing the success while others are failing? Well, in the case of Uruguay, for example, I, I think it's because of their moderation. It's very non-conflictive, their policies have been. And in the case of, of Bolivia, um, I, I think that the very unique ethnic background is a contributing factor. Also, you know, those are two countries that have made huge progress on a, on a social level. You know, when Evo Morales first took office, about 60% of Bolivians were, were living in poverty, and that's now resting below 40%, which is fairly remarkable. Life expectancy has increased. Along with Nicaragua, UNESCO declared Bolivia illiteracy-free, which is, is pretty significant, and Cuba as well, of course. And these are all these are socialist-led countries when they um, manage these feats, which is pretty remarkable. In Uruguay as well, um, under Tabara Vasquez, the, the poverty rate was slashed. So, I mean, they, they, uh, they've benefited from their successes. Um, do you think the current economic crisis will have any kind of effect on these leaders where they may not have the same amount of resources to enact these kinds of social programs? Well, I mean, in the case of Bolivia, they aren't really experiencing, the, you know, it's not really the, situ the same situation as, as Venezuela, where, you know, it exploded in protest two years ago, and as a result, there were an incredible number of human rights violations, jailed opposition leaders, you know, dozens of people who were still incarcerated as a result of those of those protests. You have a crippling hyperinflation, scarcities, you know, everything from toilet paper to milk to basic medicine. So all of that obviously has a, has an impact on you know whether whether or not uh, these people are going to manage to to maintain power. The people who are seeing success haven't had to deal with similar. Or in Argentina, where we had massive political scandals. Same with Brazil, where uh, Dilma Rousseff is currently under impeachment proceedings. So you know they they've been less impacted by some of these crises that have that have been crippling uh, South American political leaders.
Next, I spoke with Dr. David Doyle. He is an Associate Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Oxford, a Fellow of the Latin America Center, and a Fellow of St. Hugh's College. To start off with, can you talk to us a bit about the recent history of leftist politics in Latin America? So, from about 1998 onwards, starting really with at the presidential level with the election of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, we saw this election of left-leaning presidents across the region, to the extent that uh, by 2006, Nearly all presidents in South America, or Colombia, were of the left or left of center. And we had a string of, of left-leaning presidents in Central America and also presidential candidates who very nearly won the presidency. For example, Andres Obrador in Mexico in 2006. But also, the trend really starts before 1998 and begins with the election, municipal elections and legislative elections across the region. And the left slowly gains power and, and gains legitimacy from the early 90s on. Can you talk a bit about what caused that initial shift to the left? In some ways, it's not necessarily a shift to the left, mm-hmm. because we have data which shows that, for example, the political preferences of Latin American citizens remain remarkably constant over time. So there wasn't a major ideological shift among Latin American citizens in the 90s, or in the late 90s, or early 2000s. Really what it was about was, was about the ability of left-leaning parties to compete at the national level. Most of these countries, uh, the vast majority of them, bar Costa Rica, Venezuela, and Colombia, had been some form of, of military dictatorship or some form of single-party state before the period of democratization in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And during these authoritarian periods, left-leaning parties were often outlawed. They were frequently associated with armed insurrection groups or, or, or left-leaning armed groups. So the left went into the new democratic period in a very weakened position it had no real national level organizations. There was a, a fear both from those on the right and among the general electorate as to what would happen where the left could get into power. So it took a, a number of years and a number of electoral cycles in these countries for the left, first of all, to begin winning elections at the local level and then to win them at, at municipal and, and at state level, for them to gain some form of legitimacy in the eyes of the public and also to ease the fears of the right in Latin America that this would result in some type of wholesale confiscation of their assets or transfer of wealth. And so by, it was really by the mid-1990s that we begin to see the left is actually able to actually compete. And this coincides with the time when, when most Latin American citizens have become quite disgruntled or unsatisfied with the current incumbents because although things like inflation had been stabilized, growth was, dis- was, was quite disappointing and unemployment had actually risen, at least in South America, it had, it had actually decreased slightly in, in Central America. So can you talk some about the recent events in Latin America, particularly in the past year, that have indicated a shift away from these leftist populist parties and politics? Sure. I mean, we can go back even even further in the mid-2000s. We see in Chile, we see the election of Sebastián Piñera, mm-hmm. who's a, a right-leaning politician. And But this is the beginning of what we might call a shift back to the right, where people are beginning to call the shift back to the right. It probably represents, again, discontent with Latin American citizens for their incumbent governments. If we look at data at the individual level, we know that the preferences of the electorate have not changed very radically over time. They remain relatively consistent. So Latin American citizens like things like free trade, for example. They do want more social spending. They do want targeted um, cash transfer programs, so things like Bolsa Familia in Brazil. And so what the right have, have done is the right have more or less adopted these social programs. So Sebastian Piñera in Chile, for example, he had a what was effectively a social democratic platform. 
in Brazil, the right in Brazil also has more or less accepted that, that it would be impossible to win an election in Brazil without maintaining and continuing to deliver on, on Bolsa Familia. So this means the right have, have begun to adopt many of the social programs that the left implemented. And with the current economic crisis, inspired by China's falling demand for Latin American commodities, this dissatisfaction among the electorate has led to the current incumbents being voted out, so which are the left, and the right are beginning to, to win power. They now have a majority in the Venezuelan Assembly. It's most likely that the, the left-leaning party of Brazil will be replaced by, by some combination of the right or centre-right. We've also seen the election of Mauricio Macri in Argentina, um, replacing the, the Peronistas for the first time in a while. And so all of this would, would, would suggest that the, the right are, are becoming more powerful or, or at least becoming more electorally popular. But again, it doesn't represent some massive underlying shift in the preferences of the electorate. So you've spoken about some of the economic indicators of why the right is winning more elections. Are there any other causes that might um, be drawing Latin Americans away from the incumbents? I mean, we have a lot of evidence which suggests that, that Latin Americans vote according to what we call egotropic or sociotropic motivations. That is, they vote according to the economy. And this is partly because it's very difficult often for Latin American citizens to understand what a party brand means because they change so frequently. Party systems collapse party brands change. So because of this, and because party brands are less meaningful in these contexts, often what happens is that they base their, their evaluation of the incumbent on, on the economic performance. And during the 2000s, the left were able to win elections and, and were able to, to win repeated elections because the economy was booming. This was the big global commodity boom. China was buying Latin American commodities. And so the left were able to, to, to oversee economic growth, but also they then have the, the money and the cash to pay for these social welfare programs. This is all coming to an end, and this has led to a lot of dissatisfaction and unhappiness. And as a result, we see then the right are gaining more popularity because of this, the, these economic failings. The right, one of the, the major political issues in Latin America, so the major, the number one issue is not economics, however. It's crime and, public, and personal security. This is the major issue. So when we ask any Latin American electorate across any of the, the countries in the region, this is the number one problem that, that people identify. And that's also probably part of this shift to the right, because the left just simply has less legitimacy when it comes to these issues of crime and public security. And the right seem better placed to be able to at least sell themselves as, as a party or, or as a group of parties that somehow combat or, or, or turn back the tide of what many people perceive uh, the emergence of lawlessness in this, in this country. What kind of consequences do you think this adoption of more right parties in Latin America will have? As I said, in terms of social policy, probably not a huge change in that these many of these policies, once they've been implemented from what we call Progresa or Oportunidades in, in Mexico, all the way to Bolsa Familia in Brazil, all the, the countries of the region have, have some type of, of social program now that is very popular. So it's hard to see these right-leaning governments reversing or dismantling these policies, because I think it would be very electorally dangerous to do so. I think we're probably more likely to see, not necessarily authoritarianism, but certainly stricter security um, on policing legislation in an attempt to crack down on, on this idea of crime. We're probably going to see more tolerance for greater powers in the hands of police and perhaps greater judicial power in an attempt to try and combat this, these issues of, of public insecurity. From an economic perspective, we are probably going to see reasonably similar type policies because the left, when they come into power, they maintain a lot of the, the open markets or largely maintain the open markets of, of, of their predecessors, the right-thinking incumbents of the 1990s. 
And I can only see the current right-wing parties and governments, when, if they are elected, they will, they will most likely do the same. So in terms of policy shifts, I don't see anything too radical as a consequence of, of these elections, apart from Venezuela, which is a special case. Do you think there will be any policy differences in terms of foreign policy in relations to other countries? I think that's also reasonably possible. Most of these left-leaning governments have been quite unified, and they have gone to great efforts to, to create some type of pan-Latin American unity. So the Mercosur, the Mercado Común del Sur, which is a, a common market of the South involving Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay, and Venezuela, that really had a lot of success in the early 2000s before a dispute between Argentina and Uruguay more or less derailed it. We also see the emergence of UNASUR, which is the Union of South American Nations, which was pushed by Brazil, which is a way of dealing with, with conflict between Venezuela and Colombia. Um, but a lot of these initiatives were facilitated and I think were enhanced because all of these leaders considered themselves to be part of some sort of left-leaning bloc. They would have also reversed their policy and the policy of the OAS or put a lot of pressure on the United States and the OAS, the Organization of American States, to recognize Cuba. So there probably will be a change in that respect in that when we see right-leaning presidents come to power, it's hard to see or to say whether there will be that sense of pan-Latin American unity. Um, it's hard to imagine, for example, a right-leaning president in Brazil having a close relationship with um, Nicolas Maduro, for example, in, in Venezuela. And do you think there are any implications for the quality of democracy in Latin America as a result of this change? In one way, it suggests that the quality of democracy, despite its, its many issues in the region, still functions reasonably well because it's, it's, it is a form of, of electoral alteration. And this is, I mean, this is what we see in other parts of the world. So if a government is elected into power and if they don't perform well, they're elected out, they're punished. And so this shift between the right to the left and then back to the right would suggest that in Latin America, these types of electoral alterations can also continue. And in that respect, it's, it's probably good for democracy. More worryingly, in some countries, we definitely have seen a return to what some people have called electoral authoritarianism or hybrid authoritarianism. So this would be in Ecuador, and this would be in Nicaragua, and in Venezuela, and to a lesser extent in Bolivia, where we've seen an awful lot of concentration of power in the hands of, of some executives, um, nominally left-leaning executives, but probably more towards a, a populist bent. And what these countries have witnessed is increasing political polarization, increasing concentration of power in, in the hands of one group, so this is probably damaging for the, the quality of democracy. But the general alteration of democracy, for example, in, in Argentina with the election of Mr. Macri, I think is, suggests is, is probably good for elections and, and, and good generally for these countries. And you spoke about Venezuela as a unique case. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Well, since the election of Hugo Chavez in, in 1998, his death, and the, the current president, Nicolas Maduro, what we have seen is increasing polarization in Venezuela between the left and the right. Um, the opposition, the mood, um, so they have more or less established a, a kind of a broad-based coalition to tackle the Chavistas. And they are quite intent upon reversing a lot of what they call the Bolivarian reforms that were overseen by Hugo Chavez and, and by Nicolas Maduro. So what we now have is an incredibly polarized society, which is probably split not far off 50-50. The Moody, the opposition alliance, actually have just recently won a majority of seats in the National Assembly. And ironically, this was mostly because of a change in the electoral system rules. So the, the system is now more majoritarian, and this punished the Chavistas. And so as a result, what we've seen now is a two-thirds majority, with the divided government where the Chavistas hold the, the presidency, but the opposition hold the House. And Already they have come into conflict. Last week, for example, um, three of their, of their legislators 
were banned from taking their, or at least were banned from sitting in the House by the Supreme Court, which the opposition would, would, would allege are in the hands of, of, of the current government. They had a two-thirds majority. Now that these three opposition legislators can't take their seats, they no longer have a two-thirds majority, and it's become quite vicious. And so these types of political conflicts are probably only going to intensify. And should the opposition win the presidency, rather than that type of normal and peaceful electoral alteration that I was talking about, you will most likely have a new alliance will come to power and will probably spend a lot of time purging the institutions and, and the government of the, the, the previous government. And so what we end up with then is, is not just a normal electoral cycle, but really a polarized battle for, for power. And that's probably not a good thing for, for Venezuela and for its democracy. If you're willing to predict anything, what would you predict about the coming year? Social scientists, of course, are notoriously bad at prediction. Yeah. <laughs> we always get it wrong. Mm -hmm. I think what, what we probably will see is definitely a shift away from the left in Brazil. So I think the current administration of Dilma Rousseff has probably had its day. I think in Argentina, Mauricio Macri, I think he, he will be able to, or at least try and hard to stabilize the Argentine economy, and will probably try to reach some sort of deal with, with Argentina's remaining creditors. Although there won't be a major change in, in economic policy, I think it will be more outward and, and, and outward oriented and outward looking. I think we'll probably see increased conflict in Venezuela because of the issue, this issue of divided government. I think Morales will probably strengthen his position in Bolivia because he's so popular. And I think in, in Nicaragua and Ecuador will be seen with Rafael um, Correa and Daniel Ortega will be seeing increasing concentration of institutional power. So a mixed bag really, um, but these are very tentative predictions, I would suggest. Okay, great. Thank you so much for talking with us. No, you're welcome. And finally, I spoke with Robbie Mitchell, a former research associate at the Council of Hemispheric Affairs. So why do the events that we've witnessed in Argentina and Venezuela not necessarily represent a recession of the pink tide? So I think that they don't necessarily show that the pink tide is receding because it was kind of a rejection of the, the personalities of those leaders, not necessarily of their ideology. In Venezuela, for example, we have someone who really got on the opposition's bad side with his rhetoric. He just had a way of enacting kind of anti-democratic policies that led to Suve losing in the legislative elections. And kind of the same story in Argentina. The Kirchners, known for being very belligerent with some of their uh, policies and just their rhetoric. And in each case, we also not just have someone who is using rhetoric that alienates voters, but also someone who has mismanaged the economy, not necessarily because of their socialist or social democratic values, but just in the way they manage their bureaucratic structures and in the way that they just try to kind of overreach with their macroeconomic policy. So that's, I think, the two big reasons why it doesn't necessarily signal an end for the pink tide. What then are the essential ideological elements of the pink tide that have stayed through this turnover of parties? The pink tide as a rejection of neoliberalism and of the Washington consensus, that's still very much alive. In Venezuela and Argentina, there's still some bipartisan consensus on what the state should do. You know, even, even the mud in Venezuela is not saying that they should turn back progress that's been made in education and healthcare and social services. There's still this, uh, this idea that oil revenues and the state should provide more services. And that still is very real in Venezuela. That hasn't gone away with these elections. To go beyond just Venezuela and Argentina, in Brazil, we have the uh, Bolsa Familia, 
And um, even though Dilma Rousseff's popularity is now very, very low, and she's embroiled in all these petro scandals, you don't hear any other politician that's taken seriously saying that she just dismantle this large social program. Especially in terms of foreign policy, what kind of ideological elements of the pink tide do you think will stick, and what might change with these new right um, governments in place? So I think before these elections happened, there was a risk that we'd see a bifurcation in Latin America, with the Pacific Rim states being more closely aligned with the U.S. interests and with the Andean states and the places that we've seen the pink tide come very strongly align more with Chinese interests. But with the loss of Suve and of PJ in uh, Argentina, I think that we might see more of a coalescence um, of, of moderates in Latin America. I think that we're going to see UNISOR accelerating regional cooperation. I think that we're going to see states not being afraid to call each other out with human rights abuses. You know, there, there was kind of like this blind eye before uh, these elections. So I think that that might cause some tension in the short term between Argentina and Venezuela, you know, with um, cases like Leopoldo Lopez, where we have a major opposition leader given a very long jail sentence for um, agitating riots in 2014. But in the long term, I think that that will kind of accelerate the process of just closer regional ties uh, being made in Latin America. I don't like to say the pink tide will end. I like to think of it as more a rise of, of a light pink tide. You know, more more leaders like Mujica in, in Uruguay and, and, and their their social democratic policies um, kind of becoming more mainstream. So if it's not a recession of the pink tide, would you can describe it more as just a rejection of incumbents across the region? Or how would you kind of describe this change then if it's not some sort of ideological shift? Yeah, I think a rejection of incumbents is, is a fair way to, to talk about it. I also though think that we can talk about this as being a, a correction to some overreaches that were made under leaders like Maduro, you know, with price controls and currency controls, and that we're going to see uh, kind of more moderate economic policies that still allow for a reduction of inequality, because um, that's that's the really a key thing to talk about with the pink tide. It was just horrendous in the 20th century on uh, the amount of inequality that we saw in Latin America. Over the last 10 years, 56 million people have been lifted out of poverty in Latin America and 20 million out of extreme poverty. That happened because we, uh, more money was put into um, health care and education. We kind of like divorce this idea that you need to either have a minimalist state, according to the Washington census, or like a large overreach with Maduro and Venezuela. There's more of a middle path that we see in other pink tight countries that will, I think, become the norm in the region. Do you in any way think that this political turnover will improve the quality of life for Latin Americans? Yeah, I think so. I think that in terms of political expression, people are going to be freer in uh, Venezuela than they were under Maduro. But I am a little worried that with people like Macri or if uh, the the MUD is able to um, win presidential elections, uh, take over the judiciary, and maintain their control over the um, legislature, that there would be some reversals um, that were uh, of progress that are made with the pink tide. There cutbacks in uh, welfare programs, cutbacks in education. There's been no serious talk yet in Brazil with the, the Bolsa Familia, but um, that could be a very real concern as we see oil revenues fall in the region. There's less uh, revenue, and the first thing to go is often social programs. So we need to keep an eye on that.
And that final thought wraps up our podcast for this week. If you would like to read more about this topic, there are links to articles by Andrea and Robbie in the description of the podcast. If you want to share your own thoughts on this topic, we are always accepting submissions to our blog at oxirsoc.com. Thank you so much to all of our guests, to our sponsor Morgan Stanley, and to podcastthemes.com for our intro and outro music. You can get involved with the International Relations Society by going to our website, attending our events, or contacting anyone on the committee. Thanks for listening. Until next time.